You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda, folks. I'm recording this on Friday, June 5th, 2020, and I am your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. And this is the show where we take a broader look at some of the issues in Medusa's own reporting. On this week's episode, we'll hear from several guests, including the activists behind an initiative against police brutality in Russia, built around the slogan, Russian Lives Matter. This slogan, or this hashtag, as you may have guessed, adapts the better-known phrase, Black Lives Matter, which is the rallying cry for an enormous social movement that has swept and is sweeping the United States. Both of these slogans are ostensibly about opposition to police brutality, but they embody very different perspectives on injustice. Black Lives Matter, or BLM, as I'll sometimes refer to it throughout this show, has dominated the news cycle in the U.S., largely supplanting coronavirus as the nation's leading story. The movement has reverberated in Russia as well, where the state media has geopolitical reasons to highlight how the United States is a racist and failed democracy, and where many anti-Kremlin, typically Western-leaning oppositionists, look to places like the United States as an example of better governance and civil society. In other words, they're watching the U.S. from Russia, and Black Lives Matter is now front and center. While the Russian opposition is very diverse ideologically, in fact, it's so diverse that it's often crippled by infighting, Many prominent and influential figures in this community adhere to views that are generally classically liberal. In other words, they advocate deregulation, they promote a smaller state, and they put their faith in the free market as a solution to problems of Russia's post-Soviet struggles and the oppression of Putinism. That is perhaps one of the reasons that images of recent looting and property destruction in the U.S. have attracted extra attention from pundits and public figures in Russia. For example, Senya Sabchak, who ran for president just two years ago as the supposed voice for the liberal opposition, shared a ridiculous photograph on Instagram a few days ago where she's posing in some kind of traditional African outfit beside a similarly dressed African man. Under the photo, she wrote that she categorically opposes racism and discrimination and police violence, but she's disgusted that the killing of a black man in Minnesota led to looting and property destruction in Los Angeles. For example, she's particularly concerned about people stealing purses from Louis Vuitton. She then argues that the Black Lives Matter revolution isn't really about racial justice. It's, in fact, a bunch of losers who can't cut it in the free market. It's eat the rich, she says. The other day, Aleg Kashin, another controversial figure who writes a column for the liberal-leaning website Republic, formerly known as Sloan, and who has a program on the independent TV station Dojd, tweeted out a crude internet photo with a cartoon black man standing inside of a pile of stolen Nikes and iPhones and bags labeled Gucci. The image is captioned, Martin Luther King. Now, not all Russians are clutching their pearls or making racist jokes about the political unrest in the United States. And millions of Americans are doing exactly this, as a matter of fact. Even the president of the United States is using words like thugs, and he's threatening to you know, dominate his own constituents with the army, for Christ's sakes. So I'm mentioning these examples not to say that we're so different, just the opposite. 
But let's get back to the story I mentioned at the top of the show, the news peg that I'm using to discuss Black Lives Matter on a podcast that's about Russia. Earlier this week, a 27-year-old man in Yekaterinburg named Vladimir Taushankov was killed at his home by a SWAT team after he allegedly stole about 115 bucks in wallpaper and supposedly threatened the store's employees with a knife. Non-uniformed police officers then came to his apartment, banged on his door, and he pepper-sprayed them, refusing to let them in. The cops then called his dad, who tried to negotiate his surrender, but the standoff continued and the cops later summoned a SWAT team from the National Guard, as it's called in Russia. They got sick of waiting, and they stormed the apartment. Vladimir supposedly charged at them carrying a knife and what was either a Kalashnikov automatic weapon or merely something that looked like one. State investigators and the National Guard have released conflicting reports on this point. And then the officers shot him three times and he died. On Twitter, the hashtag Russian Lives Matter gained momentum after Libertarian Party member and civil society movement head Mikhail Svetov added the slogan to a tweet on June 1st about the killing of Vladimir Taushankov. Other libertarian activists then started using the hashtag in tweets about detainees in jails and prisons across Russia who have been tortured at the hands of police and prison guards. By the morning of June 2nd, Russian Lives Matter was the top trending hashtag on Twitter in Russia. Eager to seize the energy generated online, Svetov's civil society movement then organized picketing against police brutality outside Moscow's city police department on June 2nd, leading to nearly two dozen arrests. Demonstrators came with signs that said things like, who will stop the killers if they're wearing badges, and my police are killing me. To find out more about this initiative, I spoke to Svetov, and I asked him what he hopes to do with Russian Lives Matter as a rallying cry. So the, the first question I had was, the Russian Lives Matter campaign or initiative or hashtag, is this, in your mind, is this like a one-off temporary thing, or is it something you want to build on and... Do you expect to turn it into something kind of larger? Is it, a, it will be a sustained campaign? I absolutely think it's going to be a sustained campaign. That's my plan uh, from, the, from the early on, from the start. Uh, obviously, I sort of piggy banked from what's happening in the US, but also it's also something that is very important to us in Russia because uh, police violence is something we face every 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 day. Basically, so every day something like this happens, and that, that's just that's something that happens routinely in Russia. Something I want to uh, bring more exposure to, and uh, obviously it's a long story. So when you use the slogan "Russian Lives Matter," you know you're adapting this this very well known now phrase "Black Lives Matter," which is is similar insofar as it's also a movement against police brutality, but it's different in that it's rooted in you know these concepts of racial identity and, and institutional racism and social justice. And when promoting the, the hashtag or the, the phrase Russian Lives Matter, you have explicitly said, you know, Russians, some Russians or all Russians suffer more in Russia than African Americans do or have suffered in the United States. So like, I'd really, what I don't want to, I, to get into is I don't want to get into like, Who's actually suffered more? Like, let's let's stack it up. Like, you know, Gulag versus uh, Jim Crow and serfdom versus slavery. Like, Gulag was pretty bad, though. <laughs> certainly, but I mean, you, that that conversation could go on endlessly. I think and it would. It, you could never. It would never end. It's just like it's like that's similar, to, like fascism versus communism. I think like it's there's never going to be a satisfying answer. Can you tell me like why do you think it's it's necessary or useful to frame? the Russian Lives Matter campaign as a, like a response or even a correction to Black Lives Matter? Like, why can't Russia have a movement against police brutality without necessarily diminishing Black Lives Matter? Like, if the goal is just to fight abuses of authority by the police, you know, like, why not work in unison? Well, 
first of all, because it's very hard to get enough exposure when uh, you bring something like Russian Lives Matter to the top of the Twitter, you get Western media talking about it. If you bring up something else, it will bring up a much uh, lesser reaction. So th there's, a, there's a practicality to using something like that. Uh, obviously, it's not diminishing because in Russia, we don't really have a history of racial segregation or in really racial anything except from the very uh, except in the early Tsarist times and it's really didn't last for very long so uh, it, in that sense within our own culture it's not diminishing in any way not even the n-word that which is very you know charged in the English language it's not charged in Russian in the same way precisely because we never had this kind of conflict between ethnicities so I think it's a fair uh, play for for us in Russia to use that slogan to bring more attention to what's going uh, on in Russia because it's much easier to get a reaction from the Western media sometimes than it is to get a reaction from the Russian media who, uh, if you notice, I don't know, chose to ignore the uh, the hashtag. Yeah, I mean, here we are talking mainly because you did indeed choose this hashtag. <laughs> exactly. So it worked. And you're not the only one. <laughs> What's your response then to people who say that the phrase Russian lives matter is in fact harmful insofar as it... Uh, it's similar to saying all lives matter. I mean, this is this is an interpretation of that phrase. That, that and and people will then argue that Russia does in fact have racial or ethnic minorities that face institutionalized forms of discrimination, and that that using this Russian lives matter thing is is sort of steamrolling over the core of Black Lives Matter, which is that it's it, it's not just police brutality, right? Because I mean, cops beat up people all the time. Well, if you're gonna mention like Black Lives Matter and all lives matter, I'm I mean. A grave disagreement with the political left of the modern political left and I think what they do is harmful and divisive so but like when Martin Luther King was living he didn't call his movement black rights movement right it was called a civil rights movement it was called so for a for a purpose because he knew better than anyone else that uh, I think the quote goes that darkness cannot drive out darkness hate cannot drive out hate only love can, can do that and he taught the world just that what happened now what happens now is completely different now left reinvented collective punishment only now it's even worse and concerns the entire ethnic and social classes and what you get as a under umbrella of black lives movement is in my in my opinion and i feel strongly about it is a divisive movement and uh let me tell you uh, you can't restore historical injustice with more injustice. It's a dead end. You will only create more injustice and stoke more grievances. So uh, you can only end injustice here and now. And I don't see the left doing that at all with Black Lives, uh, with, uh, Black Lives Matter. Obviously, there's a problem of uh, racism in the US. Obviously, uh, police is not being impartial when they deal with a black criminal or with a white criminal. Uh, but Neither are protests are colorblind and neither uh, and you can't punish the public, you know, doing all those pogroms and riots and all that stuff. You cannot call people hostage for someone else's crime. That's collective punishment. And I'm all against that. So I just strongly disagree with the kind of framing that the left uses to um, to do the, those rallies. Would you call the uh, organized riots and uh, organized looting uh, all across the US and it's now spreading to the Europe, the same happened in London. What the hell does uh, uh, Black Lives Movement has to do with Sweden, for example? Sweden has no history of racism, it has no history of colonial oppression of any kind and somehow it suffered the same fate in Stockholm just today. The same riots, the same brutality uh, against uh, uh, 
not police force, but against just ordinary people on the streets. I, I just don't get that. I think it's divisive. I think it's a political agenda. And uh, again, I don't feel sorry at all for appropriating uh, the hashtag because I disagree with the, with the actual notion that it's about racism. I think what's important is police brutality. You have to confront that. And that's a legitimate uh, goal, unlike uh, all, all this divisive speech that surrounds it. Do you think that Police violence in Russia has a racial or ethnic component? Well, it depends, on, it depends on the region. If you go to Chechnya, it has a racial component against Russians. If you go to uh, uh, some Russian, like Astrakhan, I think it's the opposite. It's more biased against the, um, the people from the Northern Caucasus. So, yes, of course, police work is uh, biased, very often biased, in the US even more so. But it's not constructive to stoke grievances and divide the nation when you have to unite it. And I, usually the U.S. was very good about understanding that. And Martin Luther King was very good about understanding that. Somehow something broke and uh, it has to be fixed. When you talk about the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests in the United States, I've noticed that you, you usually focus on the looting, which is obviously, you know, very... I mean, it's it's striking, right? I mean, like I, I, whenever I turn on the news or look at social media, I'm also very affected by seeing businesses on fire and police stations on fire. It's that's 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 wild, right? I'm like, I don't know what to think about that. It's it's kind of crazy, but uh, you don't seem to have. I mean, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, because you've also said that you know you you are committed to a movement against police brutality, but it doesn't seem to me you don't seem particularly interested in the in your commentary, at least your public commentary on Twitter and so on about. The United States, the the, so the the peaceful protests, which are you know that's the majority of the people out in the streets right now. Most people are not burning down stuff, and and the 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 incidents you know where where black people have been killed by cops. I mean those that's that's like why people are out there in the first place. They're fed up with it because it keeps happening. So I guess like look why why is it the why is the looting for you? Because nobody is trying to uh, defend the police. Basically, when when police brutality happens, everyone is unanimous about this thing. Th those things should stop, and we should work on stopping those things. But when looting is happen, you, you have is happening. You see something completely different. People forget about all this stuff that I uh, mentioned about not you know using collective punishment because it's just evil and wrong. Uh, they somehow uh, excuse it. They someone explain it away. For, as something, you know, legitimate. And that's that, that just uh, breaks my heart and makes me very angry. The phrase Russian Lives Matter has unique baggage in the Russian language, where Russians can be translated as either Ruskia or Rosyanya. The former word typically has ethnic connotations, meaning that it applies exclusively to white ethnic Russians, whereas the latter term is used less colloquially to refer to all people and peoples residing in the Russian Federation. Svetov has insisted on using the word Ruskia, and he sparred with the newspaper Novaya Gazeta, which reported on Tuesday's rally outside the Moscow Police Department. In a special explanation, the paper clarified that it does not support Mikhail Svetov's nationalistic rhetoric and understands Russian Lives Matter to be a protest against brutality directed at all Russian citizens, Rosyanya. I asked Svetov why he insists 
on Ruskia. Well, the funny thing is, is you can't really properly explain it to your own audience because in English there's just one single word, which is, which I find ironic because that's exactly how I uh, understand it in Russian. Because it used to be not so long ago that the word Ruskia, Russians, uh, used to mean you know anyone who called himself Russian. And we had Pushkin, who was uh, who came from Ethiopia, you know, whose father was uh, from Ethiopia. He was uh, a black man. He called himself Ruski, uh, R- Russian, uh, and uh, he's one of us, our most important poets. Brodsky, who was uh, uh, an ethnical Jew, called himself a Russian poet, a Ruski poet. Uh, the same goes for Gogol, the same goes for uh, Barclay de Tolly, who didn't even spoke proper Russian, he called himself Russian. Uh, so, uh, again, I see it as, a, as an attempt to divide our society into ethnicities. And that's my biggest uh, grievance against the left, because I think they actually stoke those uh, differences and uh, prevent us from forming a proper working society. And it's my criticism in Russia as well as in the US. I think what the left does is divisive. And what I do is trying to unite people. Ila Cohen, Medusa's features editor, who has appeared on this podcast before, has an excellent grasp of the histories of both Russia and the United States. She's also politically active in the United States on issues of social justice and environmentalism. And she sees the supposed divisiveness of the Black Lives Matter movement very differently. The division here by race did not begin with Black Lives Matter. And I think that's quite clear to everybody involved. Like, I, I, I very much hope that I'm not boring our audience by saying this, but the division by race in this case began with slavery and it began with European colonization of what are now the Americas. And the unimaginable centuries long torture, brutality, enslavement uh, that proceeded from that uh, continued to be based on race. And it would just make very little sense um, to approach the present day iterations of that without Like, it it would be very strange. Obviously, police brutality affects a lot of different people, but just like on on every level, on a statistical level, on the level of personal experience, um, the disproportionate nature of these harms is so obvious that it's it's really interesting to me, like why a small group of of Russian speakers um, are choosing to question it when actually a lot of Russian speakers recognize it perfectly well. The Black Lives Matter movement it has definitely been very forward about advocating on a number of fronts. So when police kill an innocent white person, Black Lives Matter is there, you know? Basically, police brutality happens in any number of iterations. When you have police brutality against uh, Native American protesters who are attempting to stop a pipeline from being built, Black Lives Matter is there. So are immigration advocates in the United States. There's a large degree of uh, solidarity around, like among movements that are focused on different racial identities. And that typically ends up being like, I've, I've really seen a lot of productivity and a lot of um, really impactful action from that. Knowing that Hila is personally involved in the Black Lives Matter movement and that she has a much better grasp of social justice in general than I do, she and I talked at length about this podcast episode before I recorded anything. She noticed the fixation many in Russia have with looting and property destruction, a concern that sometimes overshadows the fact that the vast majority of the protests in the U.S. right now have been peaceful, and most of the violence perpetuated at these demonstrations is by police. The consequences are largely not looting. The consequences are my friends being tear-gassed, like, repeatedly 
for holding their hands up and saying, don't shoot, and um, for taking part in anti-police protests. The consequences are thousands of people being trapped on Manhattan Bridge and their cell signal being jammed with police on both sides not letting them off. The consequences are people in Los Angeles um, being held in police buses at close quarters during a pandemic and then carried to a stadium that's owned by local university and held there for hours without any form of rights. These things also have loads of parallels in Russia. So then the question that you come to is like, okay, let's say that you are against police brutality in principle, both in terms of when police murder people, when police beat people, and when police do crowd control in an extremely violent uh, way. Let's say you're against those things. It seems extremely bizarre to take somebody at his word if he says that, if he's implying that he's against those things, but he's not talking about police brutality in the U.S., even as it injures, you know, a huge range of people, even as people lose eyes, even as people, you know, have their legs riddled with rubber bullet marks and bruises and holes. It's very strange. Like, the in terms of just numerical proportion, in terms of people's experiences, the description of what's happening in the U.S. is that police are violently attacking large crowds. A lot of small business owners are coming out very explicitly in favor of these protests as a whole. They have not said, we don't want any of this to happen because a small minority of people are destroying property. Instead, they have said, like, you know, they're very concerned by all kinds of violence. But their overall stance on what's going on now in the United States is very clear, and it is anti-police. For the past week, I've been working through some of the issues involved in Black Lives Matter, on a completely personal level, I mean. And I've been trying to understand how to reconcile everything I've been learning about BLM with the field that I'm more familiar with, the study of Russia, which of course is the subject of this podcast. On Twitter, where I get most of my social interactions, especially during the coronavirus pandemic, I've tried to find the best Russian translation for the term person of color, which for the past few decades in the United States has been the preferred nomenclature for people who are not white. After some back and forth online, I foolishly settled on what I thought was an inoffensive term, человек неевропейской внешности, or person of non-European appearance. I say this was foolish because there are millions of people who self-identify as European who are not white. I was thinking more in ancient terms, but as you may know, we do not live in ancient times, so the thought was pretty dumb especially given that the objective is a translation that people of color can embrace. A more literal translation for person of color would be svetnoi, but this is the same word used to translate the term colored, which was once considered an inoffensive word for black people in the U.S., but today is regarded as archaic and actually racist. So if any listeners out there are learning English, please never refer to black people as colored. So my Twitter adventures didn't lead me to a good translation for the phrase person of color. But I did hear back from a Kenyan man who's lived in Yekaterinburg for the past five years. He agreed to a quick interview so I could ask him what it's like living today in Russia as a foreigner and as a person of color. My name is uh, Roger Sure. I'm a graduate student. Uh, I study engineering, mechanical engineering here in uh, Yekaterinburg at uh, Ural Federal University. And um, I'm originally from Kenya. And yeah, so I've been here for, for five years now. I did my my undergraduate here too. How many years left do you have in your education? One more year. And then will you go will you go back to Kenya or will you stay in Russia or do you know? Currently I'm inclined to stick around. You're watching the the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that are occurring mainly in the United States but also elsewhere. 
given who you are and your identity in the world, generally speaking, like, what do you think of them? Is that, I don't know if that's too broad a question, but like, does that make any sense to you? Like how, what do, what do you think when, when you're looking at this? You know, as, as a black person in, uh, in an extremely white country, of course, there's a lot of um, a kinship that, you know, I feel with the, with the plight of African-Americans in the United States. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm following it up cleanly and I'm also uh, monitoring, you know, uh, the reaction or the reception of this movement or the story on, you know, on in Russia, on the internet, how, you know, various people are talking about it, you know, uh, my friends, uh, friends of my friends and just like random people on Instagram, on on Vicontactier and on, on Twitter. One of the challenges I have when trying to talk about Black Lives Matter in the Russian context, because like in practice, it is a, a movement that is centered around African-Americans facing institutionalized racism in the United States. But it's if, if it's, I mean, like it's also the movement has kind of like caught on elsewhere. And in some places, it's solidarity with African-Americans. But it also seems to me that there are activists out there who would like the movement to be as broad as a, a, a protest movement against all forms of institutionalized racism. And there, you know, it's not just African-Americans that face this. In the United States, it's also people of color. You know, the, that's the term that's used, right? So it's, you're talking about Latinos and, and, and uh, I don't know, any other people that are generally not white, I suppose. And in Russia, it could be said that, that uh, in terms of institutionalized racism or discrimination, it is North Caucasians or Central Asians who face a lot of I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I don't know this from personal experience, obviously, but that, you know, the like gastarbeiteri, that the, the migrant workers are the ones that are often, they, they get the violence of police officers more than possibly an ethnic Russian. Now, you know, you've been living in Yekaterinburg, you're a black man. Have you found that people that look like you, are they subject to discrimination in Russia? Or is it, I mean, is that, is that not a good comparison? So when you when you have a skill like mine and you live here, of course you you are very very conspicuous. Yeah, uh, you cannot hide. <laughs> you you sort of become like like a celebrity of of some sort. You know, um, you know, people are fascinated by you. You know, uh, people want to talk to you. Uh, there's all kinds of attitudes that are projected, you know, on you and that kind of stuff. So is there outright discrimination? Uh, I suppose there is. Uh, personally, I mean, there's, you know, the kind of like microaggressions, you know, sometimes you go to um, a nightclub and, you know, you and, you know, your African friends and they just like tell you, yo, you cannot get in here today. And I'm like, okay, what's that about? You know, maybe some some African guy misbehaved the last time and they're like, yo, we can't let people in here anymore. Or they just don't want people like you in there. So how do you place that? You cannot. So you just, you know, you just let it go. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of microaggressions, but it depends on, uh, I suppose, who you are, if you have like brittle spirit or you're, if you're, you're like, um, if you're more attuned to, to them, then you may perhaps put too much emphasis, you know, 
than you should. So personally, um, I try not to because, you know, there's a lot to human beings that you can possibly say. But in terms of authorities, I can't say I have interacted with authorities in any um, in any way that would that has given me any sort of bad vibes or bad feeling, you know, in that regard. I don't interact with police at all. Like I've I've interacted, I've encountered police one time, and I was jaywalking. You know, it was one time. Uh, so five years living here, I've never interacted with the police in any type of way. One thing that I read about and, and hear, hear about from African-Americans is that they kind of anticipate hostility from police officers, even if nothing happens, right? That they feel uncomfortable kind of driving down the road cause, late at night or something because they, they, they know that they're statistically more likely to get pulled over and then get harassed by police officers. But you're saying that in the time you've lived in Yekaterinburg, that is not, there's no kind of fear like that that hangs over you? No, it's not been my experience. And uh, even with my other African friends, I mean, yes, I've had friends who have had problems with the police, but because maybe they were fighting, you know, they had like a fight and stuff like that. But people who don't, who haven't done any sort of thing or who are not in any sort of uh, problem, I've never had any, any of them talk about any sort of experience with the police. So in that, no, I don't have that experience personally. Also, I'd like to, to mention that, you know, Yekaterinburg is not that much of a big city. <laughs> so uh, maybe uh, Africans in, uh, in maybe in Moscow and uh, St. Petersburg, they may have like a different experience from that, you know, from me. Though I've been to Moscow, I think, three times and, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any sort of uh, like any different experience from where I live. And I've also been to St. Petersburg and it's pretty much been the same thing. So I also would like to mention that personally living here, it's kind of like I live in a bubble because I'm, I tend to interact with Russians who speak like several, you know, foreign languages. They tend to uh, well travel, you know, they tend to be like open-minded so my interaction with i would say typical interactions here may not be as unpleasant as maybe if someone were to meet you know other types of maybe not well-traveled russians maybe not well exposed uh you know the you know the type of people who live like in in a, in seclusion or something like that so it could be different with those kind of uh those kind of people. Kimberly St. Julian Varnon is a historian who studies the Soviet Union. I'm a history instructor at San Jacinto College, but I'm also an incoming doctoral student at the University of Pennsylvania. She works specifically on identity, nationality, policy, and the constructions of race and nation. She's recently presented research on African Americans' experience in Stalinist Ukraine, and she's written and spoken about what it's like to be a minority scholar in Slavic studies. I had spent the summer of 2013 doing research in 
Kiev and Odessa, Ukraine. And I kind of started thinking, were there any other black people who had ever gone to the Soviet space or the post-Soviet space? Um, and so I started reading and I found that Langston Hughes had gone to Central Asia and he had gone to Moscow. And I was just fascinated by these African-Americans who went to the Soviet Union to help build communism in the 20s and 30s. And so my work kind of looks at how does being Black in a space that doesn't necessarily have a context for Blackness, how does that shape African-American understandings of their identity? What does it mean to be Black in a context where there is anti-racism versus coming from the United States in the 20s and 30s where, you know, racism is institutionalized? And so what I found um, in, in this paper and kind of what I'm wor- I plan to work on for my dissertation is it allows them to question what does it mean to be Black if there isn't a constant threat of physical, spiritual, and psychological violence and white supremacy? And so you have Langston Hughes saying, I forgot I was Black when he's you know riding on a train. And it's not that he forgot his skin color. It's that I am in this space where there is no violence enacted upon my body or my mind. So what does that mean? And so it's really interesting and it fascinated me because, of course, and we see this now, people think that the Soviet Union just paid lip service to anti-racism, but the experiences of these African-Americans in the Soviet Union shows they actually did enjoy their time there. Um, a few of the men especially, they stayed um, in, the, in the Soviet Union. A couple of them um, lived in Uzbekistan. George Tynes actually ended up dying in, in Uzbekistan in Central Asia. And they were they were happy they were able to earn money. They were able to walk across the street. They met Russian women. And, you know, there's this really interesting thing where one of them is dancing and this Russian woman comes up to him and she wants to dance with him. And he has to remind himself that he is not in America because this initial reaction was this woman's about to get me killed. Yes. Right. And so it's like those kind of stories are the things I'm fascinated with. Um, Because of my own experiences in Ukraine, I was terrified to go to Ukraine because I was an idiot and Googled racist attacks in Ukraine, which you should never do (laughs) if you plan on going. And I got really scared. And, but I still went. I had a great time in Ukraine. Um, everyone there was incredibly nice and very protective of me. Um, But I just wanted to explore that. And so my dissertation hopefully we'll look at not only African-American experiences in the Soviet Union, but also African experiences in the Soviet Union to kind of flesh out ideas of race and ideas of anti-racism. But also, if we look at the Soviet Union from the 20s and 30s and the 60s, where you had African students coming to now where you have this, this constant problem of racially based violence, how did we get there? You know, what caused this? And so that's what I'm really interested in getting at is kind of trying to see what happened in the space of 80 years. And the talks I've given have been about being a Black person, being a Black woman in Slavic studies because we are, you know, critically unrepresented in the field. And just talking to current undergraduates and some of the students now who will be going to graduate school about what to expect in the field. Unfortunately, we do have an issue with racism. I have been confused as a and treated as a, you know, member of environmental services at a national Slavic conference, right? Because I didn't have my name tag on. They presumed that I was there to clean up after them instead of to listen to these engaging papers and kind of showing people in our field, you have to be open-minded. You can't think the one person of color in the room is there to clean up after you, 
right? And also to bring to the forefront, you have black and brown students who are interested in the Soviet and post-Soviet space. They're fascinated by Slavic languages and literature, but going to the country, going to the space can represent a chance for physical danger. And that it doesn't mean they don't want to go, but we need programs to understand that and to help us when we're on the ground. You can't just drop a student of color in Russia and not check up on them, right? You need to have those kind of things in order because when we do our research, we have to tell our families, I told this to my mom, hey, this is where I'm going to be. And my mom said, I need to know everything you're going to be doing. So if anything happens to you, I can bring your body back home. Like these are the conversations we're having to be able to do research. And so that's kind of what I do on the public front, like outside of my research is to bring more um, awareness to the fact that people of color are in this field. We've been in the field for a while, but if we're going to survive and still be somewhat diverse, we have to start recognizing these issues. So gone are the days when an African-American person can go to Russia and experience life where they're free of, of constant, the situation's now very different. It's very different. And it's also different because I'm a woman. So my experience would be very different from like an African-American or African man. Um, I'm not necessarily seen as like a threat. I'm not trying to, you know, take Russian women, but also like I'm exotified, right? And so um, like when I was in Ukraine, I people called me a prostitute. And I was like leaving the archive. I'm dressed like a librarian. And this guy kept asking me, are you working? And I am like translating in my head. I'm like, am I working? And I'm like, you think I'm a prostitute? <laughs> so it's things like that. But the, the violence is is an issue. Um, I was very lucky. I was only like uh, harassed. Orally, I wasn't, you know, physically attacked, but it was still a very big concern for me. I didn't go out at night. Um, I did not go anywhere near a soccer stadium because I knew those could be places that are dangerous. In terms of interacting with your your colleagues and with, say you have a, you describe this like an interaction where somebody mistakes you for, you know, custodial services or something. How, what's, how do you handle that? Like, I guess like, um, I, 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 yeah, I wonder, like, I'm sure that put in that situation, I would be capable of making the same mistake. And I would be mortified when it, if it were pointed out to me that I were wrong. Where do you go from there? Like, how does, how do people get better than that? I was in New Orleans for this particular conference and it took me a moment to kind of realize what happened. And so I put on my name tag. I said, I don't work here. I'm a student, you know, and it's one of those things where you just have to show that you belong in that space. And when it comes to our colleagues, just take a moment to to analyze the situation. And like all the janitorial services at this hotel, they were wearing uniforms. Like I was just wearing regular grad student clothes, right? And so just taking a moment to be like, okay, this person is in this space. They're taking notes. They're probably here for <laughs> a panel. Um, and, and just being more aware of the fact that you do have people of color in the field. <laughs> and it seems rare, but there are a few of us here. This isn't the first time Russians have watched r racial unrest unfold in the United States. I, you know, in the past, I guess 1968 was the, the big year of kind of like street unrest in the, in the U.S. But like there's civil rights movement before that and during that, like a lot of like racial injustice right on the right at the forefront and a lot of literal unrest on the streets of the United States. Right now, I see some of the response, at least from like Russian state officials, is kind of like, well, 
you know, police brutality is an issue, racism is an issue, but thank goodness, you know, we don't actually have to deal with that like the Americans do. Was that was that the attitude in the Soviet Union as well? Because, you know, I know they had an anti-racist platform, theoretically, and they had, you know, they had, uh, they had uh, a kind of national republics where theoretically they were promoting ethnic identity. And it, wasn't, it was not an, an overtly racist message, certainly. Could, could you describe for me like what, you, what your impression is of the Soviet mentality when observing uh, American kind of racial unrest in, in the past? Like what was, the, what was the, the, the narrative or the rhetoric exactly about specifically how they viewed themselves, I guess? Because it's clear that they, what they thought of the U.S. was, you know, they're lynching black people. It's a, it's a nightmare over there, which, you know, wasn't, uh, was not inaccurate, but like, or is not inaccurate. But, but in terms of like, when they see that, your, what is your understanding of how they then thought of themselves? It's really interesting because the Soviets, they were so, especially in the 20s and 30s, um, they were so actively anti-racist. You know, Lenin saying, uh, you know, black workers of America were the most oppressed of the class, you know, very aware of it. And they were very much, I don't think they were saying racial inequality is like it's solely an American issue, but they, they described in like Soviet terms, right? You have like great Russian chauvinism, this idea that there is some prejudice against people who are not Russian, but it's chauvinism, right? And it goes with being lowly educated. You're not educated in the dialectic. And these are just things that happen when you have to undo capitalism and imperialism. And so, you know, when you have the creation of the, the different the different nationalities, the promotion of national languages, you know, colonizatia. I think the Soviets saw themselves as remitting this. They they understood we do have some issues with ethnicity following the fall of the Russian Empire, but we're going to fix that. We won't be like America. We're, we would never treat our national minorities the way, you know, America does. And for a long time, especially in this experimental period that I like to call the 20s and 30s, you you do see that, the promotion of language, the promotion of culture. Um, really, when you get into late Stalinism, you see like this return of, you know, Russia as the first amongst equals, right? And you're like, well, what does that mean? It means, you know, the great Russians get to be first. But the Soviets, they did, it was an ingenious way of kind of dealing with the legacies of a multinational empire. Um, and then they try... They, I was reading this saying, and uh, it was like a, an African-American was saying how one of the Russian guys was like, well, why don't y'all just go back to Africa? And then you don't have to deal with the Klan. And it's like, how do you explain that is not the goal here? <laughs> you know, Leaving and going to Africa is not how you solve racism in the United States. Or very practical. You don't have like a home there, right? I mean, like, where do you, where do you, where do you go after you land from in the airport? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we just can't, we just don't show up. <laughs> When talking about institutionalized injustice and, and prejudice in Russia, can we talk about it? Can we talk about race like we do in the United States? Or is there some other kind of human attribute that is a better qualifier when discussing discrimination? Like I, the, the thing I most often encounter is that it's, it's ethnicity that is the biggest kind of like determinant of, of prejudice or in, even institutionalized prejudice in, in, in Russia and that race and skin color is kind of more of an American thing, like best to think of it in different terms. Like, how do you how do you approach that? It's one of those questions that I'm, I'm going to have to grapple with in my research because there there is literature on what does race mean in, in Russia? And, you know, there isn't racism. It's more based on ethnicity. But if you read 
the experiences of, you know, African migrants who live in Moscow now or of Central Asians. And, and I was reading this great article by Jeff Sahadeo, who works on Central Asian migrants. And, you know, they're experiencing racism. They're experiencing discrimination based on their ethnicity, which for many of them is because of their skin color or because of physical attributes that they cannot change. And so for me, that's a form of race. And while our, you know, our lexicon is different, while it might be ethnic-based prejudice, in the end, the detrimental aspects are the same. Right. And so I think it's very academic for us to, especially in our field, to parse ethnicity versus racism when the everyday lived experience is the same result. It's that of spiritual, physical and mental violence. So that's kind of how I come at it. And I'm sure there is tons of theoretical research that's going to say I'm totally wrong. But like when I was running, like when I was concerned about skinheads getting on a subway, I was not thinking of is this an ethnic issue or a race issue? (laughs) Because I love doing everything backwards, I waited until the final segment of this show to bring in a scholar who can talk broadly about what Black Lives Matter actually is as a philosophy of social justice and as a movement and so on. For these insights, I was lucky enough to speak to Meredith Clark, an associate professor in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. I think it's important to first explain what Black Lives Matter is um, because there are three dimensions to it, right? There's the hashtag Black Lives Matter, and that's how people connect with one another. There is the chapter-based organization where you've actually got groups of people in different cities that come together, they meet, they strategize, that sort of thing. And then there's the larger Black Lives Matter movement where there are people who decide that they want to be a part of this movement for social change, um, specifically for considering Black Americans as full human beings. Uh, so the platform of the movement for Black Lives covers everything from police reform or police abolition to reproductive justice and reproductive rights to immigrant rights. Um, one of the core arguments is that historically, Black people in America, certainly having, having been enslaved in this country, um, have been treated as second-class citizens. The Black Lives Matter movement wants is working to make sure that Black Americans are considered as full American citizens. Can you explain the, the police abolition thing to me? Would you describe that as like a main thread of Black Lives Matter politics, or is it a, a, a sort of related initiative or I would say that it is it is part of the main thread. Um initially in 2014, most of the conversation was centered around police reform, but the movement for police abolition has grown uh inside BLM and outside of it. Um and thinking about alternatives for the police. So not just community policing, but what can we do in terms of structural inequalities, income, access to health care, that sort of thing that would make the police unnecessary? And is it literally doing away with armed peace officers? I mean, is, is it like there'd be no more people with the, the guns and stuff like 
there would be an alternative. And, you know, I saw someone explain this um, really well on Twitter a few days ago, that there are these spaces in this country that exist where there are not police officers, you know, walking the block. Um, they're not posted up and, and just kind of waiting for someone to call on them. And that's in really privileged neighborhoods and gated communities where you don't have a police presence. And so what could it look like if our society was structured so that everyone uh, had that sort of life, had access to those sort of resources. And then, like, what would happen if somebody killed someone or someone stole a car? Like, who, who, in theory, like, who would be called then? Who would respond? I imagine it would be the community. And this is where uh, my expertise about this falls off. I will say I am not an abolitionist yet because I have a really hard time thinking about what alternatives to policing are going to look like. But as far as I know and have studied and have listened to people talk about it, um, that's when the community would come into play, that they would do reparative and restorative justice work. How does the BLM movement, is it able to accommodate a movement that, that sounds like Russian Lives Matter? Like how how flexible is the the rhetoric, I guess, like, or the, the logic of the movement. Like if, if, I mean, certainly in the United States, it's very specifically built around the, the legacy of institutionalized racism against African-Americans in, say, if you move this, this, uh, this movement to a country that doesn't have that particular legacy. I mean, most countries don't have the, the legacy the United States have. We're probably, we, we kind of stand out in terms of like institutionalized racism against African-Americans, but institutionalized racism exists all over, right? So could Black Lives Matter be used as a sort of larger framework for another anti-police brutality movement in another country? When this 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 movement spreads beyond the United States to a place like like Russia or let's say somewhere else in, in Europe or I don't know, any, to somewhere else, how would you respond to locals there who say, you know, um, it's the, it's the American, it's the European colonists that then settled in the United States that built this whole system of of segregation and, and slavery and so on. You know, we're not even if this. Is, I guess this this applies to. I'm, I'm, I'm describing, say, like white Europeans, like ethnic Russians or other people who fit that description. Their response might be, "Well, we're not. That's not our original sin. You know, we're not to blame for that. So there's no place for." BLM in, in our country. Anti-blackness is global. It is a global phenomenon. It's a, a global problem. And just because it doesn't show up as a black-white problem, like in that binary, doesn't mean that it's not part of other social problems that other countries experience. So if you think about racial hierarchies, right, with blackness being positioned at the very bottom, with whiteness being positioned at the very top, the further you get away from from whiteness, the more of your rights are eroded, the less human you are thought of. Um, and so, yeah, maybe this black-white setup that we've got here in America doesn't directly translate over in Russia, but you could look at ethnic minorities in Russia, you could look at religious minorities in Russia, uh, sexual minorities in Russia, and think about how their persecution and their marginalization looks very similar, if not identical, to what Black folks have and are experiencing in the States. I know that you've done some research on 
the what you call the celebrated cases that that then kind of fuel the the way that police brutality is covered in the media and understood on social media. Can you explain to me how the celebrated case cases uh, the, this concept operates? Like the, the interact you call it interactive construction of police brutality. How does that? work exactly? So the celebrated cases is actually something that I take from other researchers where they talk about uh, the way that an act of police brutality or um, even not even police brutality, an act of brutality among two individuals where one of them is killed or somehow becomes a victim becomes essentially a cause celebrate in the media. Um, and so you can think about this with someone like Michael Brown, and you've got the narrative around him having his hands up, um, him not being a direct threat to the officer. Same thing with George Floyd. You can look at it in terms of uh, sexual violence. You could think about it. I'm, I'm trying to think of some other cases with Matthew Shepard in the United States, uh, this gay young man who was tie- beaten, tied up, and left for dead outside. It is this construction between the news media, the police, and other actors that helps people think about how uh, violence and these particular interactions work and which ones we consider important and why certain ones are considered important versus others. So like right now in the United States, uh, George Floyd is one of these celebrated cases of police brutality, certainly because we've got video of him begging in the final moments of his life, his final breaths, right? But Breonna Taylor was killed, what, two months prior in her home um, because her boyfriend fired upon police officers who were there serving a no-knock warrant. You know, they had no no idea anyone was coming. It's the middle of the night. You would think someone's breaking into your home. And what is a no-knock Oh, no-knock warrant. Just for, for listeners who might not know that. Uh, a no-knock warrant. In the United States, if you're going to enter someone's home, you have to have a warrant signed by a judge that says you have probable cause to be there if you're law enforcement. And a no-knock warrant says that you don't have to let the person know that you're coming. You don't even have to knock on the door to let them know, or bang on the door in the police's case, um, to bang on the door to let them know you're coming. You can kick the door in and go in and seize them, search the apartment, that sort of thing. So the police uh, get to this woman's home in the middle of the night. They break in the door. Her boyfriend starts shooting at them, and uh, she is killed by the return fire. But her cause isn't as well known. It's not as well talked about as George Floyd's is. And so you have to kind of pick apart why that is. And in this case, it looks like it's because one, we can see the other one we can't. There's an argument to be made that one is a man and the other is a woman. And so her story just isn't deemed as important. Because in America, men enjoy a position of privilege we tend to focus our attention on them. And so women, even black women who are killed by police in very similar circumstances, we just don't pay the same attention to them because the seam is not there. It almost seems counterintuitive though, because I mean, even from a very traditionalist point of view, you'd assume violence against a woman would be more objectionable because they're, you know, defenseless or whatever. I'm using air quotes, but that's not how it plays out. You would think that. And and that, again, is another problem of anti-Blackness. Um, this has to do with a term called misogynoir. Um, it is uh, neologism, um, where you've 
kind of put to a portmanteau, if you will, put two words together. Uh, so misogyny and noir, the French for blackness uh, or for black. It is the particular type of anti-black racism that affects black women. And in this case, it manifests itself as the erasure of black women's stories. So as you can see, and as listeners might already know, I'm a white guy. And so one thing I've been reading about in the last week, really, honestly, to try to wrap my head around what's happening is the concept of white fragility, which is something that, like, as I read about it, I'm like, uh, like this is exactly how I often feel. Um, <laughs> but uh, basically, I often find myself, like, kind of wanting to walk away from tense conversations where I'm told that, you know, something I've said or something that is offensive, you know, like that's, that's what I'm told. Now it's, it's not always in a racial context, but let's, it's sometimes it, you know, it is, or it could be. And, and what I want to do is argue like, well, no, it's not offensive. And here's why. And I certainly didn't intend it to be offensive, right? Like that's the kind of like place my mind wants to go. But then at the same time, I know, you know, I have enough education to know that it's not socially acceptable to to say those things or to want to argue that because I'm aware that, that, that in terms of, in terms of intention versus impact, intention doesn't really matter that much. It's the fact that if somebody is offended, that's what counts. And I guess like from my perspective, what is often frustrating and what is the kind of source of my fragility is this, this, this sensation that, that, uh, somebody else's perceived harm because in terms of rhetoric at least not let's let's keep it at at words because you know if somebody's getting punched that's not that's objectively harm but in terms of like offensive speech uh like a microaggression then what is essentially happening you know again correct me if i'm wrong is is someone says something that they perceive to be non-offensive, someone else says something they perceive to be offensive, and then what you have are essentially two subjective kind of perspectives. And in the context of racial conversations, my understanding is that the essentially the white perspective is kind of, is just by default wrong in the context that we, because we live in a racist society, which that doesn't strike me as terribly controversial. Like that's, yes, obviously we do. And so everything we say is coded in racist legacy and so on. So then that logically then kind of says, okay, well, then the the, the perceived, you know, of slight on, experienced on the part of the person of color is, you know, that's what you're left with. That's what there there is there for harm. But then the kind of the result is essentially that I, I can say something without meaning for it to be offensive, and then I have to apologize because it has offended someone. But at the same time, saying this was offensive, whereas in my mind, it's easy to say I have offended you. I'm sorry for that. But that leads to this "if you were offended" kind of bullshit. That is, is the worst non-apology ever. But it's I, it's then hard for me to also believe. Well, that is offensive. Like I can I can believe I have offended you. That is offend. You are offended. But to believe that that is offensive, that that would in- involve a kind of logical argument where I have to be convinced that something that was said was in fact offensive for reasons, not just because someone feels that, right? So I don't know. That's that's I've I've hesitated to ask that question because it is a prime. It's just a sparkling display of white fragility. But that's kind of like as as I'm reading about the concept, that's that's been a frustration that I've been trying to articulate. 
What do you what do you think about that? <laughs> One, you know, if you if you want this to be a productive conversation and if anyone uh, wants those sort of interactions to be constructive, then it requires stepping back and thinking first empathetically. Right. And then also being able to recognize privilege and what privilege is and how everyone in some way, shape or form has it. The privilege that is being unlearned and the assumptions that are being unlearned and the language that is being unlearned at this time is tied to race, it's tied to gender, it's tied to class. And that's difficult and it's difficult for everyone. And so I encourage people to think about the learning experiences of it and to do the best that they can to step away from the emotional nature of it. You know, the the basic human impulse is self-preservation. And when it feels like even on a social level uh, that we are, you know, that there's some sort of harm <laughs> coming at us, whether it's because of the words we used or the impact that those words had or the way someone perceived them, doesn't matter. Our basic impulse is self-preservation. And to unlearn some of that privilege, you have to let go of some of the self-preservation. And to put it in context, one of the things that I often point out is, you know, this is difficult because someone has said something that is offensive. We understand the context of why it is why it is offensive. But at the end of the day, the words that you have said are not going to cost you your life. The person that you are talking to, especially when we talk about things along racial lines, comes from a history and a lineage of people who, if they said the wrong thing, if they were perceived to say the wrong thing, to have an improper stance, to interact with someone in a way that wasn't in line with the power structures of that time, it could cost them their life. And arguably, that's still happening today. And you can see that with some of the victims that Black Lives Matter is trying to bring to the fore, their stories to the fore, because of the way the police perceived them and the way that they interacted with the police, those people were killed. So when you're talking about something like microaggressions and, and someone's offended and that sort of language and no one has died, no one's lost their life, no one's lost their job, which, you know, that's that's a whole nother thing with cancel culture. The, the stakes are a lot lower when you think about it that way. If people are interested in learning more about the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States and throughout the world, because there is Black Lives Matter in Britain, France, South Africa, Brazil, right? To go back to the initial story. So I mentioned that feminist her story of Black Lives Matter, because there's a ton of propaganda out there about Black Lives Matter, what it is, what it means, who participates in the movement, that sort of thing. But to go back to the words of one of the original founders, who is Alicia Garza talking about injustice and to keep that in mind and kind of use it as a plumb line for examining coverage of the movement. You know, is what you see here and are the narratives that you see being told here keeping in constant with what the intention of Black Lives Matter has been articulated to be by the people who created it? And if it's not 
then you got to think very carefully about the messages that you're being given. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we talked about Black Lives Matter and about Russian Lives Matter and about how campaigns against racial and social injustice reverberate in both Russia and the United States. If you'd like to know more about the Russian Lives Matter initiative, please check Medusa's news coverage. To learn more about Black Lives Matter, you can visit the movement's organizational leadership website at m4bl.org, which stands for The Movement for Black Lives. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first English language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thanks for listening and come back soon. <laughs>